Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. The news this week in the markets was inevitably dominated by the outbreak of hostilities between Israel and the terrorist group Hamas following the latter's incursion into Israel last weekend and the atrocities that followed. Clearly, there are concerns that this situation in an inflammable region will escalate. And that's for one reason why, for example, we saw the price of gold firm rising back up to around $1950 an ounce following a period of weakness earlier and also prompting a decline in bond yields in most markets as investors looked for safer havens. Uh, That, in fact, offset what would otherwise perhaps have been uh, slightly concerning inflation data coming out of the US, which was slightly more positive, if you like, than uh, the markets had expected, and therefore prompting fears that this indeed might prompt the Federal Reserve to make another interest rate rise. But this is only one month's figures, and you can never really read too much into these data series. But in general terms, equity markets, though, were in good form, relatively good form this week. We saw the uh, Nikkei, the Japanese index, up around 4% in local currency terms. The FTSE 100 was up 1.4%, although notably the 250 index and A market were both marked down this week. Again, consistent with this idea of this being something of a risk-off week. In the US, the S&P 500 closed the week up around half a percent, while NASDAQ was flat. Given the situation in the Middle East, we saw some firming in the oil price, though not particularly marked move compared to other crises in the Middle East we've seen in the past. Looking at the investment trust index, which accounts for some 180 of the stocks in the FTSE All Share Index, that was actually up quite significantly at 1.7% on the week. And that, you might think, even though the number of fallers outnumbered the number of gainers in the investment trust sector, The reason why the index itself had performed better was because nine of the 10 largest investment trusts that sit in the investment company's index posted positive gains this week, led by 3i up around 2.7%, and the uh, two core infrastructure trusts, International Public Partnerships and Hickel Infrastructure, both up around 2%. Quite a lot of dispersion also in results in the sector. We saw some significant gains over the week from the Doric Nimrod aircraft leasing companies from PRS REIT, the private rental property investment company, which uh, posted some good results. That was up 10% on the week. We saw some gains also from the likes of Odyssean Investment Trust, ticker OIT, from Triple Point Social Housing, ticker SOHO, S-O-H-O, also produced some results this week. And Syncona up around 3%. Uh, At the other end of the scale, there was notable poor performance from RTW Venture Fund, the uh, early stage tech company, down short 9%, Digital 9 Infrastructure down 8%, and also Gresham House Energy Storage, ticker GRID, that was down around 6% on the week. So a very mixed bag of figures. If you want to see a full list of all the latest news announcements, you will, of course, find them by going to the Moneymakers website and uh, subscribing to the Moneymakers Circle. We have a profile this week, as it happens, of international public partnerships, ticker INPP, which, as I mentioned earlier, just had a good week this week. And that will be followed next week by a profile of City of London Trust, the trust that leads the AIC's list of dividend heroes those trusts that have increased their dividend every year for, in City of London's case, more than 50 years. To discuss the outlook for the markets, I am joined this week by James Cook, who is one of the co-managers of the J.P. Morgan Global Growth and Income Trust, ticker JGGI, a strong performer in recent years, and also by Chris Clothier, who is co-chief investment officer of Capital Gearing Trust, ticker CGT the absolute return fund that invests also across the spectrum in investment trusts. Turning to the news, 
We heard from a Nippon Active Value Fund, ticker NAVF, which has succeeded in completing taking over the mandate for two other trusts, that's uh, Aberdeen Japan and Atlantis Japan Growth. Shareholders have voted there on the proposed merger of all three, which will leave Nippon Active Value Fund managing a total of 293 million worth of assets under management which come in respectively 61 million from Aberdeen Japan and 57 million from Atlantis Japan growth. A number of shareholders in both trusts opted for a cash exit rather than to roll over into a Nippon Active Value Fund. But the result, I think, will be seen as a success with Nippon Active Value being able to bulk up to a more competitive size. Elsewhere, we heard more details from boards who have taken initiatives to attempt to deal with their discounts. We heard from European Opportunities Trust, ticker EOT. This is a European trust managed by Alex Darwell, which has a market cap of around 770 million, but trades on discount of around 10%. And the board here announced that it intends to introduce a performance-related tender offer. This follows a period of extensive shareholder consultation ahead of the continuation vote that this trust is facing in the 15th of November. The uh, proposal suggests that if the fund's NAV total return fails to exceed the benchmark MSCI Europe index in total return terms over the three years to May 2026, the conditional tender offer will be held as soon as practicable following the AGM that year, and it will consist of a tender offer for up to 25% of the fund's issued share capital at NAV minus 2%. Next, Chrysalis, ticker CHRY the early stage growth capital trust, which won some disappointing headlines with its performance fee arrangements resulted in a very large payout to the management company and to the managers just before the share price and NEV of this trust collapsed. That was very badly received by the market. And the board has now come up with some fresh proposals for where to go from here. That includes some new performance fee arrangements including a reduction in the annual overall performance fee level from 20% to 12.5%, a cap on the amount of performance fees that can be paid, that will be 2.75% of NAV, and they'll also be implementing what they call a primary share-based performance fee, in which 75% of the performance fee will be paid in shares and deferred and linked to long-term performance. You might think that this is the kind of performance fee that, in fact, the board should have introduced at the outset when this trust was launched. But, of course, it's easy with hindsight to say that. The trust is also saying that it intends to introduce a new capital allocation policy, which will aim to maintain a prudent cash reserve of 50 million. That's about 6% of net assets. It will be prioritizing distributions to shareholders by utilizing its 15% buyback authority for up to £100 million worth of share buybacks, depending on the discount, and will also distribute 25% of its net cash profits from realizations. There's going to be a continuation vote next year at the AGM, which is due to be held no later than the 30th of April. And it'll be interesting to see whether shareholders are satisfied with this latest set of proposals, which, are, again, I might say, uh, if I was allowed a little editorial commentary, is a bit of a case of closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. Elsewhere, we had another update from Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact. This is the Sustainable Renewable Energy Trust, whose shares have been suspended because of problems surrounding both the ability of the board to finalise its annual results for last year and uncertainty over the status and future of its largest investment project, which is a solar energy project in India, which has run into a number of difficulties. The latest update from the board of Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact is that they have debated at length whether or not they should look to continue with this troubled project. And they have come to the conclusion that the cost of not doing so will be greater than the cost of proceeding with it, even though in the case that they do proceed, they see a negative net present value of the project. In other words, it's going to lose money under the assumptions they're currently making. But they've decided that they should go ahead with this project because the costs of the alternative in terms of penalties and write-off of costs will be greater than the cost of going ahead. So this is a case where the board feels it's been caught in a rock and a hard place and it's decided to take the punishment of proceeding 
We'll wait to see whether this is a case of throwing good money after bad. Uh, the shares remain suspended. The board did have a say that the has obtained agreements from shareholders representing 69% of the share capital that they will vote in favour of this proposal when it comes up to a shareholder vote shortly. Turning to results, starting with annual results, and I'm going to cover these in market capitalization order, starting with the largest reporting this week, and that was European Smaller Companies, ticker ESCT. This is a Henderson-managed investment trust managed by Ollie Beckett, and it reported NAV total return for its latest full-year period of 16.4%, which was well ahead of its 10% benchmark. That earned Henderson a £7.2 million performance fee in respect of a three-year rolling period over which performance is measured for that particular purpose. We also heard from Fidelity Emerging Markets, ticker FEML, which you may recall is an investment trust that was formerly known as Genesis Emerging Markets, for which Fidelity took over the mandate just over two years ago. It has a distinctive long-short strategy for investing in emerging markets, which has a good track record in the open-ended form of this strategy over many years, which is why Fidelity, I think, won the mandate. But unfortunately for shareholders, only months after Fidelity took on the management of this trust, the Russians invaded Ukraine and Fidelity Emerging Markets had a very substantial investment in Russian securities. They had invested in them primarily because they wanted exposure to commodities. But unfortunately, uh, despite having some protection in the form of put options, which paid out, that resulted in a significant uh, hit to performance as all those Russian holdings had to be written down to zero. However, the management have stabilised performance over the last 12-month period in which they reported their results, which is the year to the 30th of June, and it reported an NAV total return of minus 2.6%, which is very marginally ahead of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index total return of 2.8%. So at least steadying the ship there. Target Healthcare REIT, ticker THRL, also reported annual results this week. This is the trust that invests in purpose-built care homes. Over the year to the end of June, it reported an EPRA net tangible assets, or NTA per share, of minus 6.9%, an NAV total return of minus 1.2%. This one currently offering a dividend yield of around 8%, but trading on a 32% discount. Uh, The trust did note, however, that its uh, weighted average cost of debt was 3.7% per annum with a balanced debt maturity of 6.2 years. So uh, not as exposed as some to balance sheet risk from the rise in bond yields that we've seen. Also reporting, this one in the commercial property sector, was PRS REIT, which builds single-family homes for rental. It's one of the leaders in the private rental property sector. It reported a NAV up 3% over its full year. And as I said, these results, along with other information that was released at the same time, prompted a significant gain in the share price this week, up 10%. But they're still down 17% year to date as the commercial property sector has sold off. Trust has now built 5,100 private rental homes and has reported a 98% rent collection. The average cost of debt for this one is 3.8% per annum with a blended debt maturity of 13.7 years. So the board here are recommitted to paying a dividend of 4p per share which is equivalent to around 5.3% dividend yield. Another trust to perform well recently was Ashoka India Equity, ticker AIE, which is a recent newcomer to the investment trust world. It reported its annual results for the year to 30th of June, NAV total return plus 18.3%, which was some 6.5% ahead of the MSC India index. This one is a trust that trades still at a premium of around 1% and issued 5.2 million shares, uh, raising 10.7 million during the year in question. Indian market's been a very strong performer recently, and this trust benefited from having the 100 stock portfolio, which is biased towards uh, small caps, which have become an increasingly important part of the Indian stock market. Finally, in terms of annual results, we heard from JP Morgan's Smaller Companies Trust, ticker JMI where the results for the year to 31st of July were not so promising. They were NAV total return minus 5%, which was just marginally worse than its index, the NSCI and AIM index. 
This trust also has a continuation vote coming up in November, and the board is recommending continuation. It says that uh, while the majority of smaller companies are navigating through multiple headwinds, the manager believes there are exciting and undervalued investment opportunities in the current environment. In addition to these annual results, there were interim statements from Pacific Assets Trust, ticker PAC, Invesco Perpetual UK Smaller Companies Trust, ticker IPU, JP Morgan Multi-Asset Growth and Income, ticker MATE, Fidelity Asian Values, ticker FAS, and we also had updates from Gore Street Energy Storage, ticker GSF, and LXI REIT, ticker LXI. Details of all those, as I said earlier, can be found on the Moneymakers website in our weekly summary of all the latest news announcements from the sector, together with our tables of share price, NAV and discount movements over the past week and year to date. My first port of call this week was to talk to James Cook, who is one of the three portfolio managers who look after JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. This is a large and strong performing trust that sits in the global equity income sector, has a market capitalization of around 1.9 billion, and that has grown significantly in the last couple of years following it winning the mandate to take over the running of the old venerable Scottish Investment Trust, which had run into a period of poor performance, and also taking on the mandate of JP Morgan Elect, another smaller trust managed by the same house. JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, as I said, has put together a strong performance track record. In fact, it's the best performing trust in the global equity income sector over every period. And if you compare it to the trusts in the global equity sector, also has outperformed every trust there as well over five years and is behind only Scottish Mortgage over a 10-year period. The trust operates by what it calls a concentrated best ideas portfolio consisting of around 50 stocks, essentially using research of its very large, extensive research team that JP Morgan has around the world, some 90 analysts. And is also notable because it's one of the trusts that has what we call an enhanced income portfolio, which means it pays out a dividend equivalent to 4% of NEV every year. Not surprisingly, given the track record, the shares trade at a very small premium, and it has been issuing shares consistently over recent times. So, James, we've delivered this 4% ahead of the MSCI World All Countries Index for the last five years, at least, and since this new strategy was put in place, or the new fund management team came in. That's a pretty remarkable performance, particularly as uh, two-thirds of the portfolio is in the US, which is a notoriously hard market to outperform. We know over longer periods of time, it's very difficult to sustain that kind of advantage. So how repeatable is it? That's a really good question. And it comes back to my point that we really pride ourselves on the makeup of the performance. So we can cut this multiple different ways. We've talked about how through different star regimes we've managed to perform. We've also cut that even in more granularly. So you can see that our hit rate in value quarters is around 70%. And and likewise, within growth quarters as well is around that level. But we've also split it by sectors. So if you look over the one-year time horizon, I'd I'd make a couple of points, which is that 4.5% alpha, which is that first, we can see that it's predominantly driven by our stock selection. And that second, if you were to look at each of the 19 sectors across the global core universe, you'd see that we've outperformed in 63% of them. So that's a pretty good hit rate. Uh, We always like to think if we're delivering in above 60%, that's a strong signal. And as you extend that timeframe, what we typically find is that our hit rate improves towards 70%. And again, just comes back to how repeatable we believe the process is. So to those who might have a little sceptical approach to this, you say that there could be an element of luck in this. Five years isn't long enough to prove that you've, you've really got that permanent stock picking ability. I guess you can't do anything except say, well, we're going to try and uh, continue doing it over time. But um, would you be surprised if people came and raised an eyebrow about how persistent this might be? I think five years. Again, it, it depends on the consistency of the alpha. So given how consistent our alpha has been, so it's not that we all got it in one big year. It's been steady throughout the four and a half years. I think that's a really positive signal. I think if we'd done plus 20, minus five, plus three, we'd be having a different conversation. I think we also have an enormous amount of data to show that at each level of the process, 
we're adding value. So, for example, we can look at the analyst performance and we can see that the top quintile returns of the analysts versus the bottom quintile returns of the analysts has a very long positive track record. I'm actually just trying to find you the numbers now. So the top quintile stocks that the analyst will look at adds about 4% of alpha versus the bottom quintile overvalued stocks, which detract 2.7% alpha. And that's with a 26-year history. And there's plenty of signals there. I think one of the other areas is we have a low alpha product as well, which we call the research enhanced index product, which is effectively doing what we're trying to do, but at a smaller scale, at a lower alpha scale. And that strategy has delivered 16 years of consecutive positive returns. So it comes back to my point that we have all these data points along the chain to show the consistency of the alpha. Which affords a presumption, though not the certainty, that it could continue in future. That's effectively what you're saying, yeah. Now, another feature of your trust is that you have a, what's called an enhanced income approach, which means that instead of paying a dividend that rises and falls or in line with the earnings or as a function of the earnings, you actually pay out 4% of the NAV as a dividend every year. And that's proved popular, I think, with a number of investors. What's the rationale behind that? And am I right in thinking that one of the rationales is that it actually frees you from having to worry about sustaining a dividend level? You know that you're going to lose 4% of the NEV every year as a distribution. Is that the main reason or are there other factors uh, behind it? I think it's given a really nice balance for investors between growth and income. So within the core equity world, you get about a 2.5% dividend yield which for some investors isn't quite attractive enough. They would like a little bit more balance between just to sort of give rough numbers, the equity market that may grow at say 7% through the cycle and you're getting two and a half from your dividend and say four and a half from therefore your growth. I think investors would rather have more balance between growth and income. And I think the 4% is is an attractive number. Now you can get that 4% through a high income strategy. The issue with that is that a high income strategy normally has to lean into certain parts of the market that can typically be lower quality. Areas like banks, insurance companies, utilities, they tend to be lower growth as well, which is why you're getting a lot more dividends back. Our ability to sort of go anywhere in the world to find the best expected returns and pay through it via growth if we have to just gives us again, more flexibility to buy great companies that we think over the long term will compound at a better rate. So let's uh, move on and talk about the outlook, because I think this is important. I mean, this record you put together has been through a period of extraordinary turbulence. We've had the pandemic, we've had the inflation scare, we've had the Ukraine invasion, and now we've got this unprecedented bond yield increase or interest rate increase. So it has been a very volatile period. And looking ahead, what's your outlook, first of all, for the global economy and therefore by implication for global earnings, which is uh, what's going to drive your portfolio? I have an idea that you are on the more cautious side amongst uh, the fund management community at the moment. Is that right? Yes, I would agree with that. In terms of earnings, we do see downside risk to forecasts. And maybe just to set the scene, if we look at global profit margins from 2011 to 2019, and the reason why I'm using those dates is because those were all else equal, relatively normal years. And from 2011 to 2019, we saw profit margins at around 11.5%. They were consistently at around 11.5%. They fluctuated by no more than 1% either side of that number. Then we had COVID. We saw record stimulus being pushed down the pipe. We saw supply constraints. And any theoretical macroeconomist will tell you that that will lead to record profit margins. And that's exactly what we saw. Profit margins jumped all-time highs of about 15% in the uh, first quarter of 2022. And consensus believes those profit margins are here to stay. We just think that's unrealistic. We think as demand and supply begin to normalize, that profit margins are more likely than not to come back to pre-COVID levels. Now, Certain things have changed. The world has become a little bit more efficient. They've realized how to work with a smaller employee base. There is AI that we hope down the road may be margin expansive, but we still think that the profit margin staying at those very elevated levels has a lot of risk to the downside. And so what we've also seen since that record profit margin back in Q1 2022 was supply has largely normalized. And with that, we have seen margins decline. Where we still think there's further downside is that demand is yet to have done so. And we're in this element of 
The Fed is there pulling money out of the system at a rate we've never seen before. M2 is minus 4% a year. It's never been negative pre-COVID. So we are seeing the Fed doing its best to pull that excess liquidity out of the system. Fiscal stimulus is still problematic, and maybe that'll exist till November next year when we have the election. I can't imagine they're going to stop that lever in an election year. But after that, I would have some concerns of where the fiscal stimulus go. And on the specific point of bond yields and the knock-through impact of those, we know there's a lag always with interest rate rises and so on to have an economy. So that would be another factor. Does the firm have a view about whether we are at close to peak rates? And secondly, does it have a view whether you think that the interest rates will actually start to decline next year? Or are we just going back to a world in which they plateau at a, around the levels which they are now, which they were before the global financial crisis? I would agree with the Fed's perspective of this, which is that it's going to be higher for longer. We have macro opinions. We don't claim to be macro experts, but we would agree with that overall view that rates will be higher for longer. And I think you're right. We are beginning to see those higher interest rates bite. I think what is quite interesting, and I come back to it again, is your bond yields, particularly in the long dated 10-year US 10 years, risen over the last three months from 4% to 5%. It's gone up by an entire percentage point. And over that time period, global equity markets have remained flat. It does feel a little bit like the calm before the storm. And we have seen that there has been tightening. The tightening impacts are beginning to bite, particularly at the low end of the consumer. Uh, We have seen wobbles taking place there. We've seen credit card delinquencies and, and provisions nearly at COVID peak levels. So those are rising rapidly. Uh, even in the safest parts of, of lending, like mortgages in the UK mortgage market, we've seen them pick up, albeit from very low levels. But we've seen mortgage uh, non-performing loans picking up. And there's an element that the UK market is one of the most rate-sensitive markets in the world. So we are going to see it here first. So it's interesting to see that unfold. We are seeing the consumer, the low-end consumer, getting pinched by food inflation, by oil price inflation. So we're beginning to see signs of things cracking. And, you know, it's for that reason that we have quite a significant underweight to the consumer cyclical part of the market. We're about 4% underweight that part of the market. I mean, it doesn't stop us from holding some of the best companies here. Names like LVMH, where we don't see it as exposed to that middle, lower end income demographic. So we think they can go through this cycle much smoother. Okay, but I've also read that when you look at uh, what you call the valuation spread between your portfolio and the world market, I assume, that that's actually at quite an extreme level. Can you explain what the valuation spread is and why you think that might be creating some opportunities for you specifically? So what we call our valuation spread is we look at the most attractively valued businesses and we look at their long-term multiple, what they trade on our JP Morgan forecasts versus the most overvalued businesses. And we take a spread to see how far apart are those two cohorts through time. And that's a really good indicator of stock picking ability in the foreseeable future. And right now, we see that that spread has really blown out. What that means from our perspective is the ability to pick stocks as we expect those to to normally converge through time. So as you get dislocations in the market, which is what we've seen since COVID, those attractively valued stocks will widen versus the expensive ones. And normally, as you find, as the world normalizes, they typically come back down as risk aversion collapses. And that's where we can typically make quite a significant amount of alpha. So in what sort of areas is the valuation spread widest? We see quite wide spreads within the defensive infrastructure part of the market. So that's your utilities and your telcos. Right now, utilities looking pretty attractive within the defensive arena. Now, that's largely because of what's happened at Orsted, that we've had these 30 40% cost inflation, and the market's worried that we're not going to get the growth in offshore wind anymore. And on top of that, Orsted has not hedged its cost inflation or revenue for the cost inflation. And that's caused its own profit warnings, which again, the market has been concerned around. You know, we look at all our companies, we've gone through this analysis with them. We still see a significant amount of growth opportunity in renewable energy. And so valuations have become attractive there. Also within the semiconductor cycle, within the silicon stars, again, we're seeing a reasonable amount of opportunities within that part of the market. And for those reasons, we have relatively reasonable overweight positions within those two cohorts. 
So there's opportunity there. I have to ask you about one phenomenon this year, which would be much commented on, the so-called Super 7 in the US market. I know you're a shareholder in Amazon and Microsoft, for example, which I think are two of those companies. And you've also had a position in NVIDIA, thank goodness, I guess, because that's been <laughs> spectacularly performing. But I think you're actually underweight in that, aren't you? And uh, that's actually cost you in relative terms. So what do you think about the Super 7? Do you share the view that their valuations are an anomaly uh, or that they're driving a stock market which otherwise looks less inspiring? Yeah, it's great. The AI-led rally that we've had and, and impacting those you know, Super 7 is, you're right. I mean, we're thinking about how AI impacts the global arena. And for us, I think we separate it into two camps, which is you're going to have a large amount of stocks that are AI adopters, and you're going to have a few stocks that are AI winners. And I think we have the ability to make significant alpha if we can correctly identify those AI winners from those AI adopters. And it feels a little bit like what we saw back in the internet bubble, back in the 2000s. We had all these companies coming out telling us that they were going to be internet winners, and it wasn't the case. And very few of them were able to actually monetize the internet. And for us, I mean, I think it's going to be a very much the same principle as that. And I'll give you one example, which is that if you look at mobile data growth from 2014, it's been running at about 40% a year. The telecoms industry has been unable to monetize any of that. And that's a huge amount of growth that we've seen. If you look at the semiconductor industry, they have benefited from that in terms of chip usage, more data, et cetera, et cetera. So it comes back to the importance of where's your barrier to entry how high quality a business are you? And that's exactly what we're trying to think about when we think about the AI winners. Who can monetize this asset versus who has to adopt? And again, funny enough, I think the telcos are probably going to be AI adopters. They're going to have to adopt AI to get their cost structure down, to use more chatbots, et cetera. Well, I think your AI winners, you know, what we found is you've talked about a large part of those names. You talked about Microsoft with their, I, th I think they have the best large language model with ChatGBT. I think that'll only improve their cloud offering, which is already the leader in market share gains. But NVIDIA as well, I mean, you're right. We, we started the year underweight. We didn't have the, the visibility in AI at the start of the year. Then the stock came out with a monster upgrade to earnings. The stock rallied hard and actually we bought it on the back of that. And the reason for that, and it's done well since, so we're glad we did, is that we finally got insight into just the scale of the opportunity of AI. And from our perspective, NVIDIA has the best GPU in the world. It's the most effective GPU. It'll be years before anyone comes out to properly compete with what NVIDIA has. And so we think that demand will outstrip supply for the next three to five years easily. Where we go from there will depend on what NVIDIA does in terms of the next chips and competition. But the only other real competitor right now that we see is AMD. And so it will still hopefully be a strong oligopolistic structure down the road. So you're not put off by what on conventional metrics looks like an absurdly high valuation of multiple of uh, God knows what and so on. You're not, you're not put off by that. No, because in the sense, we believe that the growth has changed significantly for these companies as well. So while the multiple has changed, we also think the growth has alongside that. Okay, I can't resist also asking a question about the UK market. There's been a lot of talk about how unloved and underappreciated it is, and we need to reform the London Stock Exchange, and we need to make it easier for companies to list and for companies to attract uh, overseas attention. I think you've got about 3% in the UK, as it happens, I think something like that. And I notice also from your recent presentation that it's the only market in which you actually haven't delivered some alpha. So uh, that's quite surprising. So <laughs> what would you say about that? What can you tell the UK market about uh, at the current time? Yeah, unfortunately, you're right. So in terms of the holdings that we have right now, for us, we have two stocks, really. We have Shell, which is, I mean, the last three years, Shell has been all about growing in renewable energy. And that has been a real detractor to performance because there's not been a significant capital discipline within the business. But with the oil price where it is, Shell is spitting out an enormous amount of cash. It has a free cash flow yield of around 15% a year. So absolutely enormous. And we finally got a management team now in place that seems much more capital disciplined, that's going to be thinking about the returns on investment. And it comes back to that point around valuations were attractive for quite a while, and there's been a big disconnect versus the US. But we finally have a quality management team that we believe will deliver on behalf of shareholders, that you'll begin to see more of that free cash flow yield coming back to you. So that's what got us excited there. And again, another name 
that I probably should have flagged within the Super 7. It's not quite as super as the Super 7, but is Relics. We think that's a really high quality business. They have leading market shares in, in all the industries that they operate in. And we actually think that as an AI, part of their software service is providing it to lawyers and reading all the previous cases. And with the ability to use large language models, their data set has just become significantly more valuable if you can now use that large language model to scan over all those transcripts much quicker. So in the words of the CFO, we don't think the number of lawyers will decrease. We just think they'll become much more productive. <laughs> That's the one thing we can hang on to in this age of uncertainty. The number of lawyers will not diminish. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there's nothing that the Chancellor could do that is going to make you suddenly start investing in lots more UK listed companies. I mean, both those are international businesses, essentially. For us, it's about finding those high-quality companies and where the valuations are going to sit for them. They're moving at the chancellor level. There can be some positive things for the overall economy, but for some of these mega-cap companies, it's probably not going to move the needle in the same way as it might do for uh, smaller, medium businesses. I think my final question to you, James, would be just to give you a chance to sum up how you see the outlook from here. I mean, you seem to be implying it's going to be uh, quite tough for a little while while we see how this global macro thing plays out. We haven't talked about geopolitical risk as well, how you factor that into the equation. So how do you see things panning out from here? I'd break it into sort of three components. This is the way we really look at the market, which is we've discussed the earnings already. We, we, we do see some downside risk there. The second part is on valuations, though. So overall, valuations aren't particularly attractive, but nor are they particularly demanding. They're around their 20-year historical average relative to the global equity market. But if you were to compare that to, say, bonds, then they've gone from being incredibly attractive over the last decade to not so attractive on that metric. Now, that's the valuation piece and the earnings piece. I think where we are very excited is that valuation spread that we discussed earlier, which is that the attractive businesses or attractively valued businesses are looking really attractive relative to the overvalued businesses. And that's where we think we have significant ability to generate alpha. So again, we can talk about areas like the industrial cyclicals, where we think industrial cyclicals right now, valuations are pretty high, or actually they're at all-time highs relative to their 20-year history. They've also got their earnings that we believe are relatively towards peak. So as an area, we, we are significantly underweight. But it doesn't stop us from finding great companies and great or, or great opportunities within that cohort. So we do have overweights to positions like Safran, which is a French listed. It, it's arguably the best technology in airplane engines. And they have an order book that goes out for years that's been filled. They have supply constraints still. So we think they're going to be able to price for that. And there's huge amounts of demand beyond their order book after that. So these are names that we can still pick up at attractive valuations. Very good to hear that. So that was James Cook, fund manager on JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. So talking to Chris Clothier this week, Chief Investment Officer at CG Asset Management and one of the managers of Capital Gearing Trust. The office place to start, given your particular focus and area of expertise, Chris, is in the bond market. What have we been seeing? That's a very interesting question. Bond yields have been rising. The Federal Reserve seems to or may have paused its rate hiking cycle, but the market briefly in the last week or so has seemed like it wanted to try and crack something as well. What do you make of it all? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me back on the podcast. And I should stress that uh, I'm only co-CIO of CG Asset Management. Uh, Peter Spiller remains firmly in uh, in seat, uh, shackled to his Bloomberg terminal. And uh, yeah, we do things together. But yes, turning to the bond market. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's been quite a run. And I suppose the thing that I find really strange about what's been going on in the bond market is perhaps not so much the conclusions that the bond market has reached, which is that maybe rates need to be higher, but that it's taken them so long to reach it. And and why now? So, you know, of all of the reasons that we might give, most of them have been there for quite a long time. And so what's interesting to me is that the bond market suddenly turned its focus and got very nervous about all of the things that it's got nervous about. As you say, some of these things you've been talking about, I've been talking about, we've all been talking about for quite a long time. Well, let's just take one of them then. There is a sort of narrative out there which says that the bond market's sort of finally woken up to the fact that governments have been spending an awful lot of money and (laughs) the sums don't add up anymore. In particular, in the case of the US, where we've had all this stimulus from the Biden administration on top of COVID handouts and so on. And looking ahead, 7-8% of GDP now, 
maybe it's unsustainable. Somebody's got to give. Is that a dominant reason, do you think, or is that just one of several factors at work here? I, I definitely think it is one of the big factors. And I was listening to a rate strategist at JP Morgan, who in turn speaks to lots of clients. And he said that he couldn't remember a time when he, clients have been so laser focused on talking about the debt. But as I say, you know, this has been there for a long time now. The deficit was okay, fine, it has ended up being larger this year than perhaps people projected, sort of 2 trillion around 6% of GDP. But that was always baked in from the start of the year, really. So I definitely think that that's one of the big items. And I think that there's an interesting tension about that, because clearly there's a question of who's going to buy the bonds. And that at these levels of deficit, combined with these levels of interest rates, the debt is going to continue rising as a percentage of GDP, and that gets turns into a bigger and bigger problem as time goes by. But also, at some point, those yields sow the seeds of their own destruction in the sense that the American government has to bring the yields down because otherwise, frankly, they go bankrupt. And clearly, they have the ability to do that. You know, they've managed to do that in the past. I guess the most obvious time would be immediately after the Second World War. So we're in this interesting kind of period where yields are going higher and higher and yet their very heights will be the thing that ultimately will bring them down. What does it all mean for investors? Everybody talks about uncertainty. We see this radical change in interest rates, therefore lots of possible paths we could go down from here. And basically, I don't know which of these paths is going to materialize. I don't know if you do. If you do, please let me know. So there's still sort of multiple paths from here. I think you probably agree with that. But yeah. the question is what to do about it in this rapidly changing environment of bond yields going up and rising real yields, positive real yields, and the yield curve beginning to disinvert, as we say in technical terms. You're in the bond market. You own a lot of index link uh, bonds in the US and the UK. That's your main holding at the moment. Uh, just to remind us why you are holding these things, even though that's cost you in performance terms over the last year, because these real yields have been rising and therefore the prices have been falling. Why have you got such a large chunk of index link bonds as the core of your portfolio? Is it just because they're yeah. good value? The yeah, 2% real yield is worth having, kind of thing. Yes, exactly. So I think one is just that these real yields, you know, if we're right that they're higher than R star or higher than you would suggest from productivity considerations, then those are attractive and you want to lock them in. It's partly that we think that they perform a protective role in portfolios, which is that in the event of a hard landing, we think that they will perform pretty well. And it's partly that coming back to the, the point we were talking about earlier, which is just that if these deficits are truly unsustainable, which we think that they are, then the federal government and or the Federal Reserve will eventually need to get a grip of them. And they'll get a grip of them through financial repression. And that means holding interest rates below the prevailing rate of inflation in order to bring those debts better into line with, with assets and income. And that means negative real interest rates, and that means capital gains to the owners of index-linked bonds. Now, at the moment, it's jolly painful as yields are rising, but we're pretty sure that there's a valuable price at the end, and that's what we're, we're holding on for, particularly given that it will also hopefully serve as a hedge against you know, riskier parts of our portfolio. So obviously they're generating a real yield at the moment, but you actually think you're going to get capital gains out of them, presumably because you're thinking that inflation is going to stay stickier than the Federal Reserve hopes and so on, and or because of a recession or some such thing, which is going to bring the yields down anyway. So it's two yeah, ways to win, two ways to win, I suppose you could say. Exactly. I, I like to think of them as being a, um, a coward's investment. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> But meanwhile, I mean, you have a very low percentage in what you call risk assets at the moment, which I think is about as low as it's been for, for quite a while. So you are, as you have been last time we spoke and the time before, you're fairly gloomy about the potential risk assets. We need to have a kind of reset in the price of equities and we need to have a reset in other types of risk assets. That's still your view, presumably. Pretty much. And I guess our main thing is, is that we think that there's been this dramatic repricing of interest rates, and that's flowed through to lots of different asset classes around the world. But the one where we don't think it's really flowed through is to US equities. And sadly, as we know, when the US takes a tumble, everything else goes with it. And US equities look fundamentally overpriced to us, trading on about 20 times earnings. There's lots of different ways of measuring the equity risk premium, but whichever one you choose to look at, you come to the conclusion that there isn't much of it. 
So that's one reason, which is valuation grounds. And then the other reason is that, of course, there's a wide funnel of outcomes, but our base case is that we're due a pretty nasty hard landing at some point in the next 12 months. And there's not much, in your view, that can stop that as well. I guess one issue is next year we're going to have a lot of elections. Uh, we certainly have one in the US. We might have one in the UK. And there'll be some others elsewhere. Does politics trump economics? In other words, I can't see the US government putting its foot on the brake as far as government spending is going to be uh, if they can possibly avoid it in the next 12 months. That doesn't tend to happen in the run-up to elections. How does that play into the nexus of what might happen? I think you're absolutely right that you're not going to see aggressive tightening. But I think it's also true that we have seen a lot of aggressive tightening. And there's then a question of how much of that effect has flowed through into the real economy. As it relates to the UK, one of the members of the MPC reckons that it's, and admittedly she's at the more dovish end of the spectrum, estimates that it's about 25% has flowed through. I heard um, someone from Bloomberg Economics suggesting that they believe that about 50% of the rate hikes have flowed through into the real economy. So maybe that gives you the bid ask. But anyway, certainly what it means is that a lot of the tightening that we have seen, the effects are yet to be felt. And so, as it were, that is baked into the future outlook. So in terms of risk assets and so on, that's not going to change in the short term. Now, the reason you're on this podcast is, of course, because you help to manage an investment trust and you invest in other investment trusts when you do Absolutely. take exposure to uh, other type of investment trusts and ETFs are your preferred means of doing so. And of course, the change in bodies has had this dramatic effect on the rating of the great majority of investment trusts and none more so than in the alternative sector. I think it's fair to say you, you're now saying you actually see some opportunities there now, along with some others. Where in particular are you thinking you might be able to see some value with these big discounts in the alternative space? We're not being too clever about it, to be honest. So we're going for, um, it's largely in the infrastructure space that we're looking at the moment. And it's largely the social infrastructure, so the Hickles and the IMPPs, or the renewable infrastructure, so Greencoat UK Wind and Trig, and these sorts of names. I mean, just taking the renewables as an example, we estimate that even on the most kind of conservative basis, that at these present discounts that they're trading at, which is sort of of the order of 20% discounts to their NAVs, that these are primed to deliver real returns of in the range of 5 to 6% per annum. And that's without making any heroic assumptions about them trading back up to those NAVs. That's assuming they stay at these depressed levels forever. And that's basically a, an equity return and with considerably less risk than equities. So we think that's really attractive. And these bigger trusts have enough liquidity for us to, to get involved and not be too worried about getting stuck in them. So, yeah, that's where we're putting our money at the moment. Does that mean that you think the derating has basically run its course or... Does it mean that I mean, the price could still go down a little bit further, you think? Yeah, I think you'd have to say that because the one thing that's really obvious is that the price weakness that we've seen is detached from fundamentals. And the reason that we know that is that nearly all of these alternatives, whatever sector they are in, have been able to realise assets at or very often above their stated NAVs. You know, I was just looking at a few examples recently. Warehouse REIT, for example, sold some of its assets at a 30% premium to book. Uh, Hickel sold about £200 million worth of assets at a slight premium to book, so on and so on and so on. So there's lots of examples saying that other actors are prepared to pay you know, what these things are written in the books at. But the investment trust market is putting all of these things to a large discount. And I think really the, the only explanation that makes sense to me is a kind of a quantity theory of asset prices, which is just to say that there has been this large supply of these assets in the form of equity issuance in the sector over the last decade. And all of a sudden, capital has withdrawn from the sector. Perhaps it's redemptions out of the big multi-asset funds, or perhaps it's that the wealth managers are increasingly putting their clients into low coupon short data gilts. And then with the supply for the time being fixed, um, that means that prices have to fall to make everything balance up. So for as long as that trend continues, which is redemptions out of the multi-asset funds and wealth managers not wanting to step in, then I think that prices remain weak and possibly get weaker still. Of course, what we would like to see is boards starting to take action and buying back their own stock. And that would 
reduce supply in the market and bring prices back into line with fair value. We are starting to see some of that going on, aren't we? I mean, we've seen some notable examples recently. I suppose the most notable one was what Panther International did. They've announced a big program of share buybacks and or tenders to try and reduce the amount of supply. But it's not something that comes easily to boards or in particular to fund management companies who are, who are managing the trust, does it? I mean, too many of them are still paid on the wrong basis, if you like. Do you actually sense that there is a, a sort of more general change? Is the message getting through to boards when you go and talk to them? Or is it going to be a slow process as this thing unwinds? Because it's going to take some time before these discounts, uh, we can talk about them actually disappearing again. Yeah. I mean, so the first thing I'd say is that I think there's a stark difference between conventional equity investment trusts, where I think that in general boards are doing a pretty good job. You know, I was having a look at some of the, the names that have been buying back stock, and Worldwide Healthcare's bought back 65 million over the last three months. Ditto, Pershing Square Holdings 60 million, Smithson 50 million, Personal Assets 50, uh, Rick Capital just under 40. Ourselves, we've bought back about. 60 million over the last three months. We've bought back 100 million over the last year. And that's because both the board of Capital Gearing Trust and we as a manager are absolutely committed to controlling the discount on, on the trusts. So conventional investment trusts, not too bad, B+. I would say that uh, alternatives, you'd have to give them a B-minus grade would be pretty charitable. And frankly, they've been pathetic about addressing discounts. Now, it is fair to say that it's much more difficult because they've got illiquid portfolios. And also, in, in some instances, they have levels of gearing, which mean that it would be imprudent to buy back stock. But these are things that I think can be solved over a matter of months if the board were sufficiently vigorous about protecting shareholders' interests. So I see very modest signs of change. Clearly, the Pantheon example, I think, is first rate and the board should be applauded for their actions there. But unfortunately, it's relatively rare, I'm afraid to say. Do you think there's a future for other trusts to do what Pantheon has done, which they've not only said that we're going to buy back shares, but they've also said that in future from realisations, we're going to commit a percentage to buying back shares if the discount is there. Do you think that's a formula that could catch on if we get the mindset change, first of all, of course, in the boardroom? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really nice, clear message. However, it only really works for portfolios that do get returns of capital naturally. So a lot of alternatives, particularly, say, renewable infrastructure, um, that isn't really the case because obviously you have a project that delivers cash flows over the life of the project. However, it's also true that most of the infrastructure assets, because of the fact that there tends not to be a terminal value, that then means that the cash flow yield is higher than the dividend yield. And the, the approach that boards have taken up until now is to reinvest the capital elements of that cash flow in order to sustain and grow the net asset value of the trust. Now, at these discounts that they're trading on, let's say roughly 20% in the case of the renewable infrastructure ones, the prospective returns from buying back their own shares are far in excess of anything that they could do in terms of going and investing in new kit. Um, so yeah, I think that they should be diverting the cash flows from new projects to buying back shares, and that'd be really value enhancing. Can I ask you about the commercial property sector? Obviously, you hung on to quite a lot of commercial property shares during last year, and that turned out to have a cost attached to it. Do you think the issues are slightly different for commercial property than they are for, for example, the infrastructure trust? Because they've got to worry about recession, they've got to worry about their balance sheets and so on. We have seen some realisations, but when the couple of trusts have been sort of taken out, they haven't actually gone out at a premium to uh, stated NAV anyway. They've gone out at a discount to NAV. What's your view about that sector now? I think you're right, clearly, that with fixed debt and rising valuation yields, their balance sheets are in danger of coming under pressure. Um, there's no doubt about that. And particularly going into recession, that is a sort of a twin causes for concern. But I also think that a lot of trusts are performing really quite well. So those that have got long-dated index-linked leases seem to be doing well on the one hand. And then equally, those that are exposed to residential and quasi-residential, I'm thinking you know, PRS REIT, which just announced its results recently, or Granger or Empiric, or Unite, these sorts of names, are seeing fantastic rental growth. And so I think they all look pretty attractive, to be honest. 
Uh, let's just talk then about another issue that's been doing the rounds in the investment trust world, which is obviously a key part, and that is this business around cost disclosure and whether or not uh, that is one of the factors behind the discounts that we've seen emerging. This obviously is the fact that regulations now mean that um, the way you present the cost of your investment trust, of your wealth manager and so on, looks much higher, or is much higher, but looks much higher. But the question is, is it actually a fair way of looking at things? And then separately, we've got another issue, which is that one or two platforms have been, as it were, cancelling investment trusts because they don't offer value for money, or so they say, but we don't know why they're saying that. The suspicion is that it's also about cost disclosure. What are your thoughts about cost disclosure and investment trusts in general? Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea that investment trusts should be penalised with respect to open-ended is clearly very unfortunate and a mistake in the legislation. Now, I accept that there's um, some question as to whether that's what the legislation actually really says and means, but certainly that's how it has been interpreted. And I think all of us in the sector are incredibly grateful to Baroness Bowles for the work that she's doing to try and draw this to people's attention. And then similarly, it's clearly absurd that stated cost ratio of an investment trust like PRS REITs is so much higher than than Granger, when in reality, I think that probably if you looked at Granger's costs as a percentage of their net asset value, they would be higher than that of PRS REIT. By the way, that's not a criticism of Granger or a compliment to PRS REIT. We, you know, we own both of them, but it just doesn't make any sense that one should have a very high cost ratio by virtue of being externally managed, whereas Granger has a low one by virtue of being internally managed. The costs of managing them are roughly the same. So I think that's deeply unfortunate, and um, if it could be addressed, that would be all to the good. The removing of trusts from platforms is an interesting one. As ever, I suspect that this is an unintended consequence of regulation. And so we have these consumer uh, duty rules that have just come in from the FCA. And, you know, we, CG Asset Management, are bound by them as much as everybody else. And so we had our own internal board meeting yesterday where we spent a lot of time discussing these issues and the fact that we need to demonstrate that our products offer good value to our clients and a very large element of that is cost. And so I can entirely see how the platforms have got themselves into this pickle where they look at something that has, you know, optically a very high cost ratio like RIT, which is clearly over the long term has been a fantastic savings vehicle for investors. But on cost grounds, it screens horrendously. And so um, I can see how the platforms have got themselves into this problem. And as ever, I suspect that it'll just, it takes several years of implementing new regulation. You know, the unintended consequences appear and, and we're seeing them now. And then I dare say they'll get unpicked over time. But in the meantime, yeah, I think that probably is causing discounts to rise in the sector as people simply cannot buy them, whether they are literally not able to buy them, as it were, you know, computer says no in the case of retail platforms, or whether practically they're unable to buy them in terms of a wealth manager saying, oh, golly, I can't disclose this cost figure to my client because they'll get really grumpy with me. Finally, then, let's think about um, just what happens from here. You're sitting there at Capital Gearing Trust, a large trust, buying back shares to keep to your zero discount policy. And your share price performance over the last year has been disappointing by your standards. It has fallen and the discount has appeared. So there's no chance of you changing though what you're doing. In other words, you're still waiting for reality to catch up with, if I could put it that way, with the world that you see out there. Is that a, is that a fair way of putting it? Yes, absolutely, Jonathan. It's not that we're wrong. It's obviously the markets are wrong. I'm sure that many a fool has made that remark. But no, seriously, performance for us has ticked up. So we had a positive 1% return over the third quarter. I think we're probably down maybe about 50 basis points um, since the turn of the quarter, which given the huge rise in bond yields is actually not too bad, all things considered. But yes, I think we've got two main sort of mantras at the moment. One is that for the first time in such a long time, every part of our portfolio is paying us to wait. So even our most conservative instruments are offering really attractive returns, you know, five and a half percent returns on UK treasury bills. Fantastic. So that's part of the picture. And then the other part of the picture is absolutely we're braced for tough economic times. And um, while we won't be able to completely insulate our clients from those kind of threats, um, you know, we hope to be able to protect them as much as possible from them. And so, yeah, that's what we're going to carry on doing. 
sometimes you hear people say, well, the thing with you and with Rafa and uh, personal assets owners, you've kind of got yourself locked in this sort of defensive mindset and you can't get out of it. You're never going to go back to 50% in risk assets or whatever it is. But you're still a young man. You can put that all right. Your time will come. In. The time will come when you'll be coming on the podcast in a very sort of gung-ho manner saying everything is good. Absolutely. Well, first of all, Jonathan, I mean, it's jolly nice of you to say that I'm a young man. My children would definitely disagree with you on that one. But um, Everything's relative. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but also our risk assets pushed up to close to 50% immediately post-COVID. So um, I would reject the suggestion that we're completely gun-shy. But I would definitely agree with you that we don't think that now is the moment to be heroic. And I should have mentioned other things where you do have some exposure. It's still energy and Japanese yen assets that are the things you see um, the most potential in the kind of world that you might be entering. Absolutely. Uh, although we've been trimming our energy stocks at the margin, partly because they've performed so well, partly because we're getting increasingly nervous of a recession. And even though we think the long-term returns from them are going to be fantastic, we're absolutely sure that they will lose money in a recession. And again, we are still very keen on Japan it's performed fantastically this year, and so some of that attraction has, has disappeared as the price has gone up. But I was just looking at it. What I think is really interesting about Japan is that the earnings yield as a PE rate multiples, uh, just under 15 times current year, plays you know, 19 and three quarters or whatever it is for the S&P 500. But the real difference is when you look at EV EBITDA, and there the difference is 6.3 times in Japan plays I think of the order of uh, 13 and a half in the US. And so that really is fantastically cheaper and I guess shows you that the balance sheets of Japanese companies are so much better than their um, American peers. So yes, again, a coward's choice. Very good. So that was Chris Clothier, who I must emphasize is the co-CIO of Capital Gearing Trust and of course, one of the regular contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.